0: Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Hear the animals, talking animals, talking
1: animals. Good morning, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss and my guests today are Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, New York Times best-selling authors of Zubiquity whose new book is Wildhood, the Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals. As the subtitle suggests, Natterson Horowitz and Bowers examine adolescence and the transition to adulthood in humans and what turns out to be an enormous array of animals assessing the significant parallels across species. Natterson Horowitz, a Harvard evolutionary biologist and Bowers, a science journalist, framed the new book in part by suggesting that this voyage through adolescence hinges universally on mastering four fundamental skills to stay safe, to negotiate social status, to navigate sexuality, and to live as adults. Additionally, the authors go deep in telling animal coming-of-age stories by focusing on four animals in particular, a king penguin, a spotted hyena, a humpback whale, and a wolf, and tracking their tracks through that phase of development. We'll hear about these things and more when I speak with Barbara Natterson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers in just a moment or two here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later on in today's program, I'll speak with Don Goldstein, Talking Animals, longtime Greyhound correspondent, in an effort to clarify the situation whereby a group of Greyhound kennel owners and breeders is suing the state of Florida to block the enforcement of Amendment 13, the ban on commercial dog racing, passed last fall. Right now, though, let's get to uh, Barbara and Catherine, with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Barbara Natterson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Thanks for uh, joining me again on Talking Animals. We're so happy to be here. Great. So congratulations on the new book. It's really intriguing and fascinating to probe this deeply into adolescence and what it means for humans and other animals. And early in the book, you mentioned that while working on Wildhood, you each were raising adolescents. Uh, I currently have a 15, almost 16-year-old boy at home, and I can think of little else these days, given all the drama and conflict. He's a big influential presence in our household, and that is not necessarily a compliment. So with that in mind, I'm wondering, how much did the adolescents in your homes shape the direction of the book, or even the very concept of the book itself?
2: Uh, well, this is Barbara, yeah, definitely uh, quite quite a lot, and we were actually researching and writing when both of our kids were entering adolescence, mine are a little bit older, um, but one of the things that was really um, kind of helpful in having adolescence, and there were many things, is that, uh yeah, the drama of having an adolescent in your home, I mean, the worrying that uh, you go through as a parent, about their safety, about, you know, do they have friends? Are they feeling good about themselves? You know, oh, do, is, are they, do they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? I mean, all of these kinds of things definitely um, were a North Star for us because what we do in our work together is to turn to the natural world look across species. I mean, we're talking about from fish, you know, to reptiles, amphibians, birds, and other mammals, for clues and insights, connections to um, human lives. So having an adolescent at home with all of the drama And the ups and downs, particularly the moodiness, social media was just coming into the picture, guided us in terms of what we wanted to find, what we wanted to look for, what we wanted to better understand in the wild to bring back to our homes. And I think it also really um,
3: increased our compassion going in both directions. So we were able to understand other animals, non-human animals, as um, facing these same uh, challenges that our own children were, but then also could have some compassion for our own and and remember that adolescence isn't just some human uh, burden to be shouldered, or some phase to be gotten through, or, or God forbid, a, a disease to be cured. That it's um, completely natural, and um, and you know, really seen seen around uh, the world and back through evolutionary time.
1: Yeah, because I guess while this is obviously a scientific book and there's a lot of research that's gone into it, uh, I'm sure having these uh, adolescents uh, there uh, in the next room probably kept it from getting too clinical or too scientific when there was some, some new development on the horizon there from school that day or whatever it might be.
3: Exactly right.
1: Yeah. So with these books, you two have forged something of a, uh, I guess, a cottage industry exploring rich, provocative topics at the intersection of humans and animals in coining a new word first that was used, uh, Zubiquity, with the last book, and now Wildwood. For those who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, tell me what you mean by uh, Wildwood. Maybe i uh, will ask you to take that one, Catherine.
3: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Wildwood comes out of our five-year study at UCLA and Harvard of adolescents and wild animals all over the world, and uh, as we've been saying, how their experiences are nearly identical to those of human teens. And um, as an applied animal behaviorist and a science writer um, and a mother of a teen, um, I saw an opportunity to bring um, this expertise to understand the field. So we, um, we're, for, the first thing we wanted to do was try to define what adolescence even is. Because, you know, if you ask um, a pediatrician or the, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's going to be a different phase of life than it is if you ask a neuroscientist. Um, and, you know, our legal systems and our military systems, they have different ages for when it begins and ends as well. So, what we wanted to do was look for something that wasn't limited to teenagerhood, 13 to 19, and wasn't limited to when you could order a beer in a bar or wasn't, you know, when you could vote. Um, and what we came up with was this term, wildhood, that starts uh, basically at the onset of puberty and ends when the animal has achieved these four core competencies to live in the world. And those are how to stay safe from predators, how to uh, navigate social hierarchies and find places and groups, how to uh, navigate sexuality and express your own desire and understand and interpret the desire of others, and then finally, how to live on your own, which is basically how to find your own food. Um, in if you look at wild animals, if you don't, uh, a wild animal that doesn't gain eat all four of those competencies is probably not going to make it, like physically make it in the world. Um, but as humans, we have uh, we we have something more of a human support system, so that uh, you can you're probably not going to die if you don't have all of those competencies, but you might have a, a less happy or a more difficult life if you haven't addressed each of the four.
1: So maybe before I, asking to elaborate a, a bit more on those skills and, and maybe why those four, as you work on the book and the research for became the paramount four, was there another skill or two that sort of were close runners up, like, okay, this was five and six, but we really only want to have four? I mean, were, were there things that were super close to to, to being almost as significant? Um, that is a wo- – <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> now, that's such a wonderful question. I'm just smiling. Um, it, it, the the – um, it's a provocative question, and, I'm, and I'm, my, my mind is racing because uh, there, there's so many. Uh, there's so many things we learned about, you know, this wide range of animals going through this phase of life. But we put most of, we put all the skills that we thought an animal needed into four categories. But within the category, for example, of learning to stay safe, there are multiple skills. You know, one of them is just learning to um, to not be predator naive. To that's the term that's used in wildlife biology to literally um, learn, you know, make make sure that you're not the easy prey that's chosen. And some of that has to do with putting off uh, these these signals that it's called signals of unprofitability that are like, don't choose me, I'm no, I'm not worth your trouble. Uh, so, you know, within safety, there's there's many many skills, and and then within uh, sexuality as well. And our, our scientific process
3: involved looking for behaviors that were more prevalent in this between puberty and maturity stage of life and seen less often in juveniles and mature adults. And what those ended up being were that adolescent animals are more likely to take risks, to um, seek out novelty. They're more likely to gravitate towards same-age the peers. They, they are, they're more likely to practice courtship behaviors Um, And then also there's this moment of dispersal that's really seen across species where they they leave the nest and have to fend for themselves in a number of ways. And um, so it was out of those unique behaviors that we distilled from our years of research that um, that we extrapolated these four core competencies.
1: And when you arrived at those four, I mean, some seem kind of obviously, I guess, sequential, but is there one that you think, well... This is particularly fundamental, and there's no advancing without this one, or this, or this other one over here. Or do you do you feel like they're they're largely equally weighted, or?
4: Yeah, they
2: all do. Um, they they operate both, you know, simultaneously and sequentially, but certainly. When an adolescent animal is first big enough to leave its parents' direct protection and be off on its own, it may be big in body, but it's low in experience. So learning to be safe is probably really the first and most fundamental, and in a way, obviously, um, the most crucial skill. But learning to stay safe, that skill continues throughout throughout that period and actually throughout life. But safety, I think, is probably the most foundational. Um, And then the others are pretty simultaneous. Becoming self-reliant, although we emphasize that sort of moment of leaving the nest or leaving the burrow or the den um, or going off to college, let's say, um, really even that process of becoming self-reliant starts not only at the beginning of adolescence, but even before, but definitely it's concentrated during that period following puberty um, before an animal leaves home. And and not only are these skills um, somewhat
3: sequential, they're also, they do overlap at their borders. So staying safe from predators is obviously very important. But um, young animals also have to learn how to stay safe from exploiters, which are older members of their own group that can take advantage of them just because they're younger and more um, less experienced. Mm-hmm. And as, as we all know, you know, we, we humans need to worry about that, too, being exploited by by older, um, older humans, um, and and also it's really, really important for social animals to learn how to get along with other social animals, because being uh, exiled or ostracized from a group is, you know, that, that cuts off all your survival, so it's, um, so the, the second skill of, of status and learning how to navigate social hierarchies um, is also a bit of a safety um a safety
2: uh, competency as well. And if I can just jump in with one additional danger, uh, which is really not not only relevant to human adolescents and wild animal adolescents, but that our own dog in our homes, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a danger of being an adolescent that has to do with older animals not tolerating developmentally normal, though perhaps annoying, let's say, behavior. And just as our own teenagers can, you know, let's face it, sometimes, I mean, there are moments when I, you know, I think I can look back and think, oh, my God, this is just, you know, my stress level was just so high. Um, Similarly, you know, uh, dogs go through an adolescence that do birds, and and I'm sure people who are listening who have horses and other animals, I mean, it's it's clear that there's developmentally specific and sometimes, you know, um, more difficult behavior during that period. But it turned out that it's a pretty high-risk period, canine adolescence for dogs to be surrendered. And so one of the things that we really want to do is educate people about the idea that there is this developmentally normal period of behavior there. There may be more rambunctious, they may be um, testing boundaries, they may be louder, but that um, with proper training, with proper behavioral training and time, um, it gets better.
1: So you're saying as these the household, the family dog enters a certain phase That's where trouble sometimes is brewing and people say, oh my goodness, I don't know what happened to Sadie or George, whatever the dog's name might be. But we're having trouble here and if they don't make the extra effort to find out what that trouble is and then obviously curtail it, that's what often leads to surrendering that family dog.
2: Um, you know, I mean, in general, the yes, the idea is that behavior that would be tolerated in a puppy, um, come adolescence, is not well tolerated. And also, you know, as the brain and bodies of, of dogs get older um, and their behavior changes as a consequence of that, yes, it becomes, for some families and some, you know, pet parents, it becomes harder to tolerate. And so we just, you know, it's really interesting to um, read the literature on on a dog surrender and um, try to understand things developmentally, and then take that information and bring it back to our own homes and maybe help us be more empathic and compassionate and more tolerant of, let's say, the the uh, you know the non-dog, but the human adolescents in our in our home.
1: Yeah, well, that's really interesting because I mean, one of the things that I just found so. Fascinating about the book is that it's just chock full. I mean, even as you're making some other point, or even if we're talking about one of the animals that we'll get into in a moment that you that you track more specifically, it's just loaded with all kinds of references to often wild or exotic uh, animals. So it's interesting that we're just now sort of making a, a direct connection to what happens with family dogs and how that can go awry if people aren't super vigilant about some of the changes in behavior. Yeah, and,
3: and all also- happened to um, sorry, sorry, just, just quickly. It also happens with rabbits and birds and cats. When they, when they hit adolescence, after having been in that more juvenile stage, uh, the behaviors just become harder and harder for families to um, understand and address. And if they don't know that these are normal adolescent behaviors that this animal will eventually grow out of, um, it does increase the surrender uh, rate to um to shelters, and they're also um, often, you know, it's the time when when dogs are more likely to be banished to the to the backyard and like tied to a stake or something. So yeah. the the numbers are pretty dramatic in that in that
1: sense. Well, that feel, makes me feel slightly less guilty about considering rehoming our son lately. So that's very good. So <laughs> this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tune in, my guests were Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, New York Times bestselling authors of Zubiquity, and their new book now is Wildhood, the Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals. If you'd like to ask them a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So I kind of alluded to this, but in addition to addressing the skills that we just touched on, another element that lends structure and, and depth really to the book is the way you focus somewhat episodically on four animals, a king penguin, a spotted hyena, a humpback whale, and a wolf, and track their tracks through adolescence to adulthood. So how did you arrive at the decision to zero on, on those types of animals and then those individual animals in particular?
2: Well, we wanted to tell the story of specific wild animal adolescents. That, um, and, and in order to do that, we looked at um, a pretty wide range of wildlife biologists who were studying animals all over the world using uh, tracking devices, whether they were GPS collars, satellite, or radio collar tracking, so that there were data points. And we looked at, um, you know, we looked at different animals. We were trying to identify species, um, that illustrated safety, status, sexuality, and self-reliance. And we landed on these four animals, um, and were able to use the data points that these investigators, um, had collected to study other phenomenon related to those animals, and create the stories of these adolescents um, and then put them onto maps and use that as a roadmap for for talking about the competencies so for example we looked at we found. Uh, these king penguins that were being studied, and we chose one of them that the wildlife biologist um, had named Ursula, mm-hmm. and that was, that helped us tell the story of safety. We chose for status, we actually chose a spotted hyena adolescent who had been studied by a group of uh, German biologists for decades down in the Gorogoro Crater in Tanzania, and his name was Shrink. For sexuality, um, we ended up using data that's been collected on, um, a female humpback whale named Salt, and she's probably the most famous female, she's the most famous humpback whale in the Western hemisphere, but there were lots and lots of data points about her, her, let's say her romantic success. In other words, it was about her sexuality, her coming of age sexually, um, her first time, this, this idea of emergent sexuality. And then finally, for self-reliance, we chose the work of a, of a group of um, Slovenian uh, <clears throat> biologists who were following a gray wolf uh, who they named uh, Slavic. Uh, and there were lots of data points for him. And so we were able to able to tell the story of of leaving home, essentially, and the dangers and the growth um, leading up to his arrival in a um, national park, a forest near Verona, where he met a lovely female gray wolf, whom the biologist named, of course, Juliet. <laughs> And we uh, we wanted
3: to use this structure because we um
2: because we kind of wanted to make the point
3: uh, in a sort of literary writerly way that we are all Ursula we are all shrink we are all salt we are all Slavic we all we all have the experience the the feelings of inexperience or um, you know privilege and friendship or first times or trying to get out into the real world and. Um, by telling coming-of-age stories of other animals, again, we were hoping to foster this, um, this cross-species understanding of this time of life.
1: Yeah, because I guess, uh, as we touched on a little bit before, if we don't master those four fundamental skills, and so therefore we're not, in a sense, doing what Ursula Shrink, Salt, and Slavic did, then we're we're in trouble at some, some point along the line.
3: Right. Um, right, and... If- uh, you, you, you can, uh, Each one has a different, a different fate, um, but we, we are able to, uh, to complete the story on, on all four about what happens to them um, after their adolescent experience.
1: And what, if you had to say, what's the most significant thing you learned from what are essentially kind of case studies, I guess, really, of, of those four animals that you've selected?
2: The connection back to human life um, really, for me, was um, the most powerful lesson from all of those animals. Uh, you know, very often when we were in the writing process and researching, we would start with um, one of the challenges of being a parent of an adolescent. We'd start with um, worrying about their safety when they're first driving, when they're first going into a new environment. Um, we worry about their emotional life, the their moods, the the ups and downs when they're, you know, entering a new social environment. and um, that has a lot to do with uh status and and their perception of themselves living within um, the hierarchies in which all animals like i mean all social animals live we we talked about we we worried about you know um would our children find, you know, romantic happiness and all of the difficulties associated with that um, we're researching animal sexuality and the emergence of sexuality um, across the animal kingdom? And then finally, would our kids be able to support themselves? Will they make it in the adult world? So... As we were doing the research and telling these stories, um, we were deeply informed by a need to answer those questions for ourselves as parents and then hopefully um, for other people who are raising adolescent animal adolescents. Yeah, and we, we think that, um,
3: or we're, we're really hoping that our book opens doors to the most important conversations that uh, any adult could really have with any, um, any adolescent from sort of age third grade to 30. Um, and maybe even with themselves after the fact, you know, the idea of, um, of these four core skills. And, um, yeah.
1: No, that's actually a really good point because, as I think I've made all too clear, I, I was sort of reading it very directly through the perspective of the nutcase in the next room. But I also, at times, as it went on, I thought about my own adolescence. And uh, I really thought, wow, that is so interesting because, of course, I'm part of what goes with being an adolescent is you don't really think outside of that, what, what you're looking at at the mirror at that moment or some new problem or craziness or whatever. But in looking yeah. back, you really sort of view things with so much more clarity, obviously, especially as you're reading something that's really research-based and scientific about that very phase.
2: You know, um, we teach a course at Harvard called Coming of Age on Planet Earth, and we teach this content to groups of 18 to 22-year-olds who are undergraduates. And um, one of the really most gratifying and really educational for us parts about doing that is the, watching them um, recognize the four animals, the you know, and and the experience of adolescence as it applies to their own lives as college students. So there are connections for parents, connections for you know, um, teachers and psychotherapists, but but also really for for you know, adolescents themselves. Yeah, I think that's also why we wanted to come up with a with a fresh new
3: word for this phase of life because no one really wants to be called an adolescent. On the first day of class, we always ask the class, you know, and they're they're usually eighteen to about twenty three years old. And when we say, "Raise your hand if you're an adolescent," and nobody's hand goes up because they don't think that they are. But then we say, "Okay, raise your hand if you think you're an adult," and nobody's hand goes up. So, um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're somewhere in between here. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. We're somewhere in between, but we don't we don't quite have a word for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Wildhood is it, yeah. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guests are authors Barbara Natterson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers, whose new book is Wildhood, the Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. And we do have a uh, call. Let's get them involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Barbara Natterson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers.
4: Yeah, I'm one of the animals. I'd like to know after an ice age, what direction is the temperature supposed to go? Hear me?
1: Yeah, no, we heard you.
4: Yeah, after an ice age, what direction is the temperature supposed to go? Up. Is that why it's a global warming?
1: Uh, well... Either uh, Dr. Natterson Horowitz or Catherine, do you want to field this? Or uh, otherwise, I think we might move on to our own uh, questions.
2: Yeah, I don't don't know that I feel qualified to answer that particular question.
1: Yeah. Thank you for your call, though. So I think uh, I'd be stating the obvious to suggest that some traits that define uh, many human adolescents at least include uh, Risk taking, thrill seeking, uh, less than stellar judgment. Can you address, though it might seem initially uh, counterintuitive, how those traits can actually be virtues for both human and a- animal adolescents, for that matter, as they approach adulthood?
2: Yeah, interest in being with peers, which is something we see in human adolescence. You know, parents become less interesting and peers become more interesting. We see that um, from fish through birds through non human mammals during adolescence as well. And an important reason for that is that um, very often in nature, peers have more up-to-date information about the environment than parents may. And so when it comes to food choices, for example, um, or, you know, decision-making about which which way to fly or flee, um, uh, there's a tendency for, and it's a hardwired biologically um, prime tendency for adolescents to begin really watching what their peers are doing. So that's um, one of those things that, you know, I think as parents we do a lot of hand-wringing about peer pressure. But there is a way to, first of all, understand peer influence and even frame it in a positive context. And that's just one example. But the risk-taking you asked about really quickly, it turns out we did a pretty comprehensive uh, study, a survey of um, how dangerous adolescence was from fish through mammals, again. And um, this took about two years, and we um, determined that it's pretty dangerous as a spike in even mortality in adolescent animals who are... Who are big in body but low in experience, you know, they are uh, easy prey. But one of the reasons there's uh, one of the reasons there may be an increased um, mortality in these non-human animals is that they do these behaviors that are risky but they're important. And one of them is called predator inspection, and this is something that's seen in gazelle, it's seen in meerkat and mongoose, it's even seen in fish and bass. And this is where they sometimes adolescents approach predators instead of running away from them. They do it in groups with peers, but the point is, is that even though it's dangerous uh, when they are doing it up front, there's danger. The information they learn about their predators, they smell them, they they watch them. They get all this information, which is really part of their safety training. So even though it looks terrifying, uh, and it is, it does have some risk for these wild animals. Having that experience with the most dangerous things in their lives ultimately keeps them safer as adults.
3: And the idea being that um, that adolescents are hard- hardwired to take these risks, which um, can kind of put a put a new spin on the knuckleheaded antics of our own human teeth. so, <laughs> so that, they're, <laughs> that they're that they're that um, they're kind of propelled to seek out novelty and to to test these boundaries um, and and the reason might be predator inspection, it might be um their their, their way of trying to get them to get an experience in the world before they have to be out there on
1: their own. Right. And I guess, on, at least on the human side, if what you beautifully call knuckleheaded antics, I guess in most cases, the hope is that you would learn from. That, that knucklehead and antic that day or, or, God forbid, your series of knucklehead antics and be all the better for it as you do advance towards adulthood.
3: Exactly right. And one of the ways that um, that young animals do learn is by watching their peers, by experiencing these things with their peers um, and get getting um, getting information. I mean, in the most literal sense of how their predators hunt and smell and move and what time of day they hunt, but in a more um, apt, maybe abstract, but still biologically hardwired way, how, um, you know, what what it feels like to put yourself out there.
1: Yeah.
2: you know, it's um, just just to to mention one of the ways of understanding in our work that we um, try to understand what seem to be phenomenon that are really um, seem like very modern and very human is to really look you know, far far back in evolutionary time for patterns and connections, just to inform our thinking, even if we're not making a one-to-one correlation. And it's always good to remember that our human species is only, you know, 200,000 years old. And yet we walk around with a lot of biology and neurobiology specifically um, that is Fairly, you know, pretty much shared with um, many of of our a- mammalian ancestors, and actually many of even of our vertebral ancestors. And so, sometimes with that expanded evolutionary perspective, we can begin to to maybe understand in a. In a broader way, um, or interpret um, some of our some of the, the behavior that otherwise kind of head scratching. Well, and I,
3: I was really interested just to see how much of this trial and error has to go on for animals at this age of life. Whether it's practicing the courtship moves that they need to to know in order to kind um, of successfully communicate with potential mates later in life. They're not they're not born. Knowing how to do the courtship ritual of their species, and um, we actually have videos on our website of, of eagles and albatrosses' adolescents practicing these incredible courtship rituals that the mature ones that do, but the adolescents are either you know do, doing pieces of it or trying and failing. Um, and I don't, know, again, I think that that has a lot of, um, I don't know, a, a lot to say about our human um, take on sexual experimentation or flirtation or, you know, pr- pr- the tradition of proms at school or school dances. Like, there's just there's just a lot of trial and error of uh, practicing, of needing to observe adults uh, in healthy, mature relationships to in order for youngsters to understand uh, what that looks like, what a healthy relationship looks like later in life.
1: Yeah, and I guess just kind and of shaking the awkwardness of being a, a, a fledgling, I guess, of one kind or another.
3: Yes, and also exactly. That, that that awkwardness. Is expanding. like it, if you're feeling awkward, you're not the only one. There's probably a you know a whale or a penguin or someone that
1: feels Right, but again, you're too self-absorbed at the moment to even notice that or think about that. But uh, yeah. So and that web the Oh, sorry. The, I just want to say quickly, Catherine. The website you referred to, I believe, is is Wildhood.com. Is that where people would find some of the footage you're referring to?
2: That's right oh. wildhood.com
1: yeah. okay cool sorry I didn't mean to interrupt uh, go ahead no
2: no theres there's a video section but I just wanted to add that you know in addition to the work in our phylogeny lab that we um, where we do our, our you know primary scientific research we also go into the fields and into the field and do um, observations of wild animal adolescents, and one of the things that we're looking for is fumbling behavior so um, we, we like to we, you know we watch tons and tons of, of nature documentaries and we've looked at you know a huge amount of wild animal video over the years. But um, we, we kind of laugh because we're not that interested in the most beautiful, perfect execution of the courtship dance. We're interested in, in the fumbling efforts. So we, are, uh, we, are, we have a lens for something different than, than most, uh, let's say, wildlife documentarians do.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. And that, in a way, that kind of reminds me, uh, about a month ago, um, Newsweek ran this interview with, you, with the, both of you tied to the book and headlined How Two Authors Changed Their Parenting Styles After Studying Animals in the Wild. Now, in my reading, very little of the Q&A actually involved you two addressing changes in your parenting styles, although, Catherine, you did mention the way you adapted some of this research into parenting choices you made with with your then-adolescent daughter. But now with the book out and, and sort of looking back, I'm wondering, what are two of the three most significant changes that you each did make in parenting, as a result of the research uh, of, the, of the book, or just in the midst of working on the book.
2: For me, the biggest uh, the biggest thing that I think I would have done differently. My kids are now out of well, they're they're in their twenties, but you know, out of that kind of thicket when they're in the home, yeah, I'm um, with us. But you know, I I would have been I would have been more careful with social media. It was just coming up on the scene, and um, you know, I didn't I, I think understand what it really, the connection between what social media was and mood. So one of the things we did in one of our studies was to look at, we really wanted to understand why there is, uh, seems to be a connection between social media use and depression and anxiety in adolescents. And so we looked across species at um, what we call the biology of comparison, because that's really what's going on on social media. Sure. Kids are, you know, counting their followers and likes and that sort of thing. And we really were able to... Um, create a linkage between this ancient biology of comparison in which um, animal brains are essentially, air quotes, rewarded um, for reduced status and sort of, air quotes, reprimanded um, mm-hmm. neurobiologically, neurochemically um, for uh, dentin status. And it really, for me, began to help kind of connect um, my the variation in moods that, that were happening for my own kids and even in myself and how they perceive themselves relative to their peers. And then linking that back to social media, just thinking that if the biology of comparison is um, evolved to sort of award, let's say, um, a boost in status, which of course increases an animal's chances of surviving and reproducing and do the opposite when they fall in status, it began to explain why social media was so emotionally triggering And so when I look back, if I had understood that, I would have, A, been able to interpret their moods in a different way, and, B, I probably would have thought about um, um, creating some more restrictions. Again, it was early days, and um, that sort of stuff just hadn't even occurred to me.
1: Yeah. And how about you, Catherine?
2: Well, for me, um,
3: there was a term that we learned um, early on called practice dispersal, and um, I guess I had always sort of thought that most animals kind of you know, got to that adolescent phase and then they got kicked out of the nest or their, you know, their mother waved a paw at them and off they went. But uh, we found that there's a lot more practicing of leaving the home and coming back than I even knew. So we learned about some Australian possums that the mothers take their their, uh, adolescent offspring out um, one day and they make them find a, a nest and they each spend the night and the day foraging on their own and then they come back to mom and their siblings the next day and kind of regroup and do this a couple of times before they leave uh, on their permanent dispersal. And so uh, in my family, we just started calling, you know, the the school trip to Yosemite or, or you know, the three days, the three days away, we would call that a practice dispersal. And mm. so there was one day when my daughter was getting uh, ready to go on a plane for um, a week away and she said, I'm off on my practice dispersal. And there was just <laughs> something about... Um, us all knowing that that was a term, that that was a thing that happens in nature as well, and that there was a a leaving and coming back, and that the skills being learned were important. That was useful for us. Um, And then another thing was um, something called extended parental care. It's kind of related. Um, It has to do with when animals disperse into the wild and the levels of predators they encounter or how much food there happens to be in the environment, and that can really affect how well they do once they're out on their own. And in more difficult years with more challenging environments, and also sometimes based on the social structure of the species itself, uh, animals will come back even after they've dispersed, and their parents will feed them or give them shelter or offer them protection. Um, and again, that's called extended parental care. And uh, that seems like a really useful way of looking at some human activity as well, whether uh, whether it's what we call boomerang kids who are back in their parents' homes, Um I I don't know, I feel like that gives me more compassion for hearing about those um, human social patterns um, through a more ecological lens.
1: And, and, you know, as you were talking about the dispersal, and again, for a lot of us, the the less technical term is leaving the nest. But And so uh, in humans, uh, while it's become sort of a natural step for human adolescents, if they are indeed going to go off to college, that's when that sort of dispersal, obviously typically would happen. But can you talk about a few more sort of notable examples of animal dispersal, like you mentioned the Australian possum and practicing, but sort of what drives it in them? Because most penguins or wolves or possums or whatever uh, are not headed off to to, to Harvard or UCLA, to, to mention two campuses where you guys are both taught. So what makes that sort of almost as clear cut if it is as what often for a lot of adolescents is sort of like a natural point at which to disperse?
2: So there's a range of ways in which wild animal adolescents disperse, you know, some of them like Slavic, the gray wolf in Slovenia. It was a combination of, of his emerging neurobiology and then seasonal effects, um, you know, some environmental triggers that literally overnight um, he just woke up and he took off on his on his dispersal. And actually there's a brain biology that emerges in the period right before dispersal in adolescence. Uh, where they become kind of more restless, there may be sleeplessness, and then they take off. So there's a a neurobiological priming, let's say, of the animal before they leave, but that's the wolf. There are other species where um, adolescents may be reluctant to leave, and we actually studied um, a group of, um, There there's studies of of eagles, there's Spanish imperial eagles, there was a study that was done of a group of, of them, and some of them don't want to leave home, and the mothers actually have to grabbed their talents. they put their talents together like a club, and they sunk their adolescence literally out of the nest. And it's actually called, the authors of the study called it parental meanness, M E A N N E S S, actually mm. parental meanness because of the reluctance. So you see this variation of the ways that um, some adolescents believe and others don't. But one of the things that's interesting since you mentioned college is that, in a way, today, college is more of a practice dispersal than a true final dispersal. Mm. Um, yeah, because so many of, of our kids at 22, aren't yet in a position to really make it completely on their own. And as Catherine mentioned, we studied a pretty wide range of, of animals, and we, we wrote about them in the book, that, that do um, you know watch their animals leave as young adults, but then sometimes um, may continue to give them support in the form of, of food, let's say, or protection, particularly if it's really rough out there or if their hunting skills haven't yet been fully developed. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is they
3: often go off in groups, like almost like graduating classes of animals. So um, the penguin Ursula that we um, that we tracked, she went, she departed on a certain day in December, along with a few other penguins. That there were there were groups of adolescents that left on you know several weeks on either side of the date that she left. So they kind of go in, in these waves of groups um, but we talked to uh, we talked to a lot of different scientists about a lot of different animals from uh, fusa that live in Madagascar to uh, mountain lions in California they often will disperse with another with a, a sibling or a, another litter mate um, and it's, it's kind of safer a face if they do it with another so, gr- groups and not being alone at that exact um moment of leaving the nest can also
1: help. Just the safety and numbers thing taken to its Mm -hmm. uh, most logical uh, extreme.
2: And and if I look back at what I might have done differently, just I'm kind of thinking about that question. When you do disperse, when an adolescent disperses, it is a dangerous period. I mean, they are, you know, they're in new environments and there are new exploiters or predators. Um, We learned that Slavic, one of the reasons that Slavic actually survived, um, it's believed, is that... His mother had trained him how to use wildlife crossing corridors because one of the dangers for a dispersing gray wolf is, is being hit by a car on the highway. So parental training for this, this, you know, this wolf mother, um, it, it appears you know was able to make it more likely that, um, that, her, that her offspring would, would do well. And you know, it's a sad, um, though poignant, uh, reality that you know, animals who are hit by cars on highways uh, you know, sometimes they're called roadkill, but these animals are um, disproportionately dispersing adolescents who haven't yet gained experience, haven't developed what are called road smarts. Mm. So a lot of a lot of the lessons are really about um, training and and thinking hard about what are the dangers my my young adults going to face when they disperse, and and how can I before they disperse help them practice the skills they'll need to stay safe. Yeah, and when and when you have
3: those conversations with an with an adolescent, the conversation can get kind of deep because one like one of the things. Young animals need to know how to do once they're out on their own. Is they have to feed themselves. You know whatever that means. They have to figure out how to feed themselves, um, whether it's on their own or hunting with a group or whatever. But so so it's really important for uh, you know someone going off to college or off to work or into service to know how they're going to get their food and. So the first step is, you know, can you make yourself a bowl of pasta or, or, you know, a cheese sandwich or something, and that's great. But then how are you going to get that food? And then it goes another step deeper with how do you pay for that food? And then the next step is how do you literally make your living um, and, you know, what does that look like? So thinking along that path um, in those incremental steps I think can also really help youngsters as they're preparing for that next mature phase of life um, to ask important questions without having to do it all at once unprepared.
1: Gotcha. Well, that seems like the perfect point at which uh, to leave this. So uh, we've been speaking with Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, the author of the new book, Wildhood, The Epic Journey from Adolescence to, Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals, and available presumably wherever you get your books. And again, there is a website, wildhood.com, for um, videos and other information on some of the things we've been talking about and much more that we didn't have a chance to cover. So I uh, look forward to reading the next book, especially reading whatever the next new title that you guys... Is the, t- the phrase that you coined for that. So, uh, anyways, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. I appreciate it. Thank you. It
3: was really fun. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. In a few moments, I'll speak with Don Goldstein about the lawsuit filed recently that aims to block enforcement of Amendment 13, the ban on commercial dog racing, voters passed last fall. Right now, though, it's time to step into the comedy corner. This is Maria Bamford. With a piece I'm calling Raccoon Horseback Riding on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNL. My
0: beloved husband has noticed that I like to tear open packages of food, take caps off beverages, and leave it out and around. And he said very kindly, very sweetly, why? And I said, because I'm a raccoon. I need to get in there, get what's good, be on my way. Oh, but what if it goes bad? What if you get sick? Were you not listening when I just mentioned that I'm a raccoon? I can digest ceiling tile. I just need to fill this up. Get back to the river with my friends. Did you just bring an old salad to bed? It's nighttime. I'm awake. This year, my friend Amy is all trying to get me to do stuff. I'm going to try to say yes. You want to go horseback riding? Mm, wh- what is it? You go on a dusty trail with two lesbians who used to be a couple, but now they run a small business together, and horses bite. Okay, I'll go once, and I'll need a Dairy Queen Peanut Buster Parfait on the way-, way back. That's hot fudge, peanuts, ice cream, hot fudge, peanuts, ice cream, hot fudge, peanuts, ice cream, <laughs> 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 cherry topper! You want to go swing dancing? Are people still doing that? The war is over. There's plenty of pantyhose for everyone. It's on Sundays from 2 to 4, just when you don't want to do anything, and it's side, side, back step, side, side. I'll go for three years, but that is it. You want to go to a fitness boot camp? It's every day at 6 a.m. Because they're getting you into a shape. And you run and you run and you run and there's no game element to distract you from the fact that you're running and running and running. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go for five days. Day five, Tanya, I don't know it's going to be Tanya, is going to say, Come on, Maria, I want to see you push it! <laughs> and I am never... Gonna go again. (laughs) But will you forget to cancel the automatic debit coming from your checking account and pay for it for the next year and a half? Of course I will. (laughs) I love you so much. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks a (laughs) lot. That was Maria Bamford with a piece I've called Raccoon Horseback Riding, taken from an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Now let's speak with our longtime Greyhound correspondent, Don Goldstein. Let's welcome Don back to Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Don.
4: Good morning, Duncan. How are you
1: today? Good. I missed uh, speaking with you, though you've... uh course, been writing in now and again and calling in on some of the other shows of late. But uh, but let's uh, let's dive right into this. So I've seen chatter online about this lawsuit. I can't quite tell if it's just uh, sort of a desperate move by sore losers or is it something more substantial? Well, uh,
4: we think it's the former. We think it's a pretty desperate move uh, to, to expect a federal court to overturn State constitutional amendment, an amendment to a state constitution. Um, it, to the best of my knowledge, it's never happened before. Um, particularly one that went through the processes that Amendment 13
1: did. Is there any actual prospects? Uh, like what you just described, it seems like it's a rhetorical question. But I mean, do they do they really think they have a chance, or are they just trying to make some noise and just try to take a wild stab and just see what happens?
4: Well, it's interesting, even the uh, the treasurer of the support working animals, which is the primary uh, plaintiff in the in the suit, has indicated that, that she believes it's a very long shot for this to have any traction.
1: Yeah. So it's not going anywhere? We don't think so. Yeah. We
4: really don't. I mean, it, it, I hate the second-guess judges. You know, you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble doing that. Sure. Um, but it's just hard to imagine uh, that this will probably even go to trial. It's scheduled for trial right now in June. Um, but it, it's hard to imagine that we can get that far.
1: And is it just the way things work in the court system that it's, uh, I noticed that June trial date, and I just thought, wow, that seems like kind of a ways down the road for something that, regardless of how seriously people are taking it, it just seems like it would be addressed sooner than that.
4: Um, federal courts, uh, particularly on the civil side, just they, they drag out forever.
1: Yeah. I,
4: I've seen this, you know. Uh, I mean, the, even the, the the complaints in the, in the, in the suit, they talk about due process. Well, if you think back to, the, the Constitution Revision Commission, where this, uh, this amendment originated, uh, that's a two year process. And yeah. It's laid out in our Constitution, and they followed that. And then it, that got it on the ballot, and then over 69% of the voters approved it. So I, mean, I, I can't think of a better example of due process.
1: Right. Right. So otherwise, is everything, this notwithstanding, everything sort of on track with the timetable laid out by the uh, the amendment as indicated of how the sort of phasing out would work over over that period?
4: Oh, absolutely. Of the 11 tracks uh, that we started out with in Florida on the date of the election, five have already closed. Two more are going to be, uh, this spring will be their last, uh, last races. Um, so that only leaves three that are going to go to the end. Um, We also know that, um, and the NGA, the National Greyhound Association acknowledges, they significantly curtailed their breeding even before the election. Um, So there's just the existing animal, uh, the adoption groups are absolutely going to be able to handle the number of greyhounds that can be put up for adoption when greyhound racing terminates in, in Florida on the 31st of December of next year.
1: Because one of the uh, sort of tactics or fear-mongering, I guess, that happened in the run-up to Amendment 13 and then after was like, oh, these dogs aren't going to find a home and they'll have to be euthanized and a lot of sort of dark scenarios. But it sounds like really that's really not realistic based on especially how gradually some of these tracks have been closing anyway.
4: No, that's not realistic. It never was. It was always a fear tactic. At least we thought it was. Um, and, in fact, now Jim Gartland, who's the head of the National Greyhound Association, has promised that no dogs will be euthanized as a result of Amendment 13. Um, I take him at his word.
1: And, actually, here's a question I should have asked, and in, in one of our e just uh, popped in. Is there a name of the group that has filed this suit, or is it just sort of a collective? I know it's some breeders and others, but is there, is there an actual name to the group itself?
4: Yes, Support Working Animals is the name of the group.
1: Support, sorry, I dropped the... Support
4: Working Animals. Oh,
1: Support Working Animals, okay.
4: Right. All right. Um, although Greyhounds is their total focus, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, and there are several other um, breeders and, and trainers that have signed on to the suit as well, but Support Working Animals is the primary focus and the primary fundraiser.
1: Okay, well, it sounds like, uh, all things considered, nobody uh, has any real concern. I mean, again, this won't even uh, be uh, get into court till June, but it sounds like whenever it does, it's probably going to be prompt. Thrown out.
4: Two things, uh, you know, real quick at the end here. Um, I'm not losing any sleep over it. None of us that were involved in Amendment 13 are losing any sleep over this lawsuit. Yeah. Second thing is, if it starts in June, the chances of it uh, finishing before the uh, the termination date of December 31st slim and none. So right. it's almost a moot
1: point. Right. Gotcha. Every which way, it sounds like we're in good shape. Right. All right, Don. Well, we're just about out of time, but thank you once again for uh, providing your expertise on something that just seemed like kind of a a weird peripheral thing, but we just wanted to be sure to address it. So thank you so much. Well,
4: I thank the opportunity. And by the way, your guests today were marvelous. Um, As a father of two, grandfather of five, and you know how many greyhounds I've had, um, it was just an amazing comparison between the humans. Yeah. Um, it was it was really fun to listen to. Well,
1: thanks, Don. Yeah, the book is as you might guess is quite fascinating. So, thank you again. Got to run though. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, we're at the end of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rubloire is up next with radioactivity, and then uh, Paco after that, and Scott Elliott after that.